Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Martin Waters is currently Head of Educational Development Management at Pfizer. We met several years ago and worked together on some materials about virtual learning environments. This is Martin's jam. He started his professional life as a teacher and was an early adopter of technology in the classroom. We talk about mannequins, high fidelity simulations and football, by which I mean, for listeners in the US, soccer. Because like me, Martin talks British. Listen with me. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and I'm here today talking with Martin Waters, a learning experience designer who's currently head of educational development management at Pfizer. Welcome, Martin. So happy to have you here on Right Medicine. Alex, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here too. Let's start with who you are, what your background is, and how you find your way into education and clinical or medical education in particular. Well, it's it's one of those things I think like for, for most people. I remember sitting on my mum's my knee as a five-year-old in the claim that I wanted to get into to CME and and simulation, um, you know, it's obviously a joke, but it's the, the same thing for, for kids growing up today. The, the job didn't exist, so, you know, it's incredible to think what amazing professions were available to, to children growing up in, in 20 years or so. Um, I think like most Northern working class kids at the time, you know, even at a young age, I thought it was going to be football as my professional choice or a train driver or a, a detective or some form of a, an amalgamation of, of all three. I was looking enough actually to, to go to university to study um, a subject I was good at and enjoyed, which was uh, English. Um, at the time, there was a lot of, um, not overt pressure, but certainly, you know, a lot of my friends were doing more vocational courses or, or IT courses as well for, for their studies. But, um, you know, I stuck with Earth Humanities because it's something that I enjoyed and, like I say, something that I was... I was relatively, relatively good at and never, ever, ever intended to, to become a teacher or, or get into education. It was just purely, luckily, um, studying something, something that I enjoyed. It did actually eventually open up the, the doorway to, to get into the, into the classroom as a teacher. Oh, I didn't realise you, you had been a teacher. Makes total sense. Yeah, so and that was the, the first real job, um, as it were, uh, quote-unquote real. So I started off as a teacher moved on to teacher trainer, director of studies, uh, materials designer. And it was at that, that time where technology was becoming more and more apparent in the, in the classroom. So I was finding myself teaching a lot more uh, of online classes and um, using some of the, the new approaches at the time, like flipped classroom, blended learning approaches. And like I say, it was becoming more apparent that this was something that I was enjoying and, and something that was really having a, an effect on my 
uh, teaching and, and my approaches. So did a somewhat sideways career shift and started working for an organization who created um, online simulations in 3D virtual worlds. And that was for the the aviation and the the oil and gas industry. Uh, of course, yeah. It was superb, Alex. It really was. It was a, a real eye-opener just in terms of what was available, what the affordances were of the, the technology. And it was also an eye-opener in the sense that it was, it was clear that my my skill set was lacking somewhat. So I went back to, to university to do my, my master's degree in educational tech. And yeah, it just really really exploded from there. That was the, the catalyst for um, joining a, a small uh, startup in, in Durham, North Carolina at the time, who were creating virtual patient simulations. It was just past the, the coffee shop stage uh, when I joined. <laughs> um, I was hired to do um, instructional design work for the, the virtual patient sim and, and the rest is history really. Yeah, it was good. That is so interesting. I should point out for our listeners in the United States that when Martin talks about football, he actually means soccer. <laughs> <laughs> Still somewhat painful to refer out to that, but yeah. You're, yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Yeah, given Scotland's success in 2020 in terms of uh, football it's uh, or soccer, it's it's a big conversation in our household. And you mentioned a couple of things there, classroom and and so on. It's interesting, no assumptions about age here, but how long some of those concepts have actually been around in the broader field of education, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and still apparent today without any age disclaimers or anything along those lines as well. It it is. It's it's fascinating, isn't it, how some ideas take hold and and some don't and some catch on and some don't. It's almost like... um, likened to, to a pendulum, isn't it, about some of the some of the ideas and theories, some garnering more weight and then going a little bit out of favour and, and swinging back to, to something else. So, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely an interesting time, both on the, the technology front and how the, the approaches were influenced by what was available in terms of the, the educational technology of the time. Right, and that's shifted enormously. When you talk about uh, simulation, my first experience of simulation as a nurse in Scotland um, in the 1980s, was Annie the mannequin. Right. Yeah, Annie's the CPR mannequin, isn't she? Oh, yeah. So what is simulation? Because when you're talking about advances in technology, you're not talking about a mannequin. Yeah, that's a really good point. Isn't it? There's so many uh, modalities of, of simulation out there, and it's, it's such an emotive word right now as well, what with you know the, the current tech and how it's being portrayed in media and film and, and television as well. It's it's anything really. You know, you've got your lo-fi simulation, your high fidelity simulation. So things like the the really, really, really expensive mannequins who don't just um, operate as a CPR training but have <laughs> the ability to portray human physiological responses to to treatments or um, interventions that the, the practitioner provides on them all the way down to something as basic as orange peel being used as a suturing device. You know, it's got the, the broad spectrum between um, any of those any of those separate modalities. So I think, you know, it's a, a working definition, certainly something that we use. It's just the idea of it being something that replicates some aspects of reality with the intention of training. I think that's probably a, a really nice working definition of, of simulation. 
That's a great definition. Tell me, can you tell me a bit more about the orange peel? Because when you said orange peel, I immediately thought of oranges. And of course, we learned to actually give injections on oranges. Wow. <laughs> you see, this is, you know, we should be sponsored by a fruit company or something. For Absolutely. So the, the skin, the, the peel of an orange, I've seen it being used to, to practice suturing techniques uh, for, for stitches and, and various things on those lines. Apparently it's got a very, very similar consistency to human skin. So after you get right. the injection, you can perform a, a little bit of stitching on it as well. I'll uh, get my thread and needle out <laughs> uh, after, this, after this conversation. When I trained as, a, as an OR nurse, we actually had to spend a month in a sterilizing unit and have tours of, um, I think it was Ethicon. I don't think Ethicon is in business anymore, but they were a suturing company. Right. And yeah, and there was a lot of cat gut. I don't think there's a lot of cat gut around now. I think most suture material is synthetic, but we, we got to learn all about that. Anyway, that was a very long time ago. The other thing that you mentioned there that I thought was really interesting was mannequins that have physiological responses can you talk a little bit more about that yeah it's incredible isn't it you know the the cutting edge technology that's that's available now you know a lot of the high high-end mannequins have the ability to perspire um, they can replicate heart sounds lung sounds pupils dilate pulses quicken just depending on what intervention the the simulation practitioners are performing at the time so it's, it's incredible to see. It really, really is. And then a lot of them also have the ability of, of speech. Um, there's a, a small microphone placed into the, the mouth of the, the mannequin and a, an operator, a simulation operator, can, can speak if needs be to give an extra sense of portrayal of, of realism. So, yeah, it's, it's incredible to see some of the high-end tech. And then, you know, like I say, everything between from that to, to orange peel, it's, it's fascinating. It really is definitely an interesting area. That is amazing. So what kinds of simulation do you find work particularly well for clinical learners? Because I'm guessing that, you know, most listeners will think about simulation, you know, as we've been talking about, we're talking about physiology, we're talking about procedural stuff, we're talking about hands-on experience Mm. of clinical practice are there other ways to use simulation? So I guess there's two questions there. You know, what kinds of simulation work particularly well in clinical education? And what's what's the most effective? Great question. And I think it, it comes back to the, the underlying question that we probably ask ourselves every day as um, educationalists, and that's choosing the best modality for, for the best problem that we're, we're trying to solve. So like, like we said before, with the, the hi-fi mannequins if you're looking for a a cardiac situation a a trauma situation you know they're they're the top quality most applicable appliable um, learning interventions and solutions for for that one simulation is great though in the sense that you can go from that all the way through to a a standardized patient so an actor Mm -hmm. who's portraying a certain condition so a great way to to practice taking a, a health history uh, maybe having some difficult conversations with a, a confederate as well. So, for example, if you're learning how to break bad news to to a partner, to a to a parent, to to a patient, obviously a, a real life human being able to to react to, to the words that you're saying is is an incredible learning experience as well. And you know the the background that I have really with with virtual patient simulation, amazing device in the sense that it portrays a a virtual representation of a 
a real life patient. So you can do all of the things that you would do in a, in a real life practice setting. So you can order tests, make diagnosis, administer treatments, um, prescribe follow-up. And every step of the way, you're getting targeted feedback on the appropriacy or otherwise of the decisions that you're making. So it's, it's a great tool for um, reinforcement of learning, but it also operates as a, a catalyst of change. So real safe environment, you can make mistakes, you can experiment, you can try things out and you're getting the, the targeted feedback on on whether it's a, a good thing or a bad thing and the, the data the data behind the choices as well as to, as to show why it is such a good thing or, or such a bad thing. Can we talk a little bit about, you mentioned a couple of things there. Actually, you mentioned three, at least, feedback. Why is feedback important? You mentioned mistakes. Why is it important to have that opportunity for making mistakes built into the kind of simulation that you're talking about? And then the third part that sticks out for me is you mentioned catalyst for change. So let's just kind of break that out a little bit. What kinds of feedback are possible in the kind of virtual patient simulation that you're talking about? And why is feedback important? Wonderful question. And I think the, the key component to, to thinking this through is that, you know, full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a definite lay person when it comes to uh, anything of the, the clinical nature. But being in the close proximity to the field and just realizing how quickly things can change. Uh, in terms of best practices, best treatments, new protocols, new algorithms for, for treatment or prescribing, uh, sorry, for, for making a diagnosis. Having a medium, having a, a vehicle to provide this new information to practicing healthcare professionals in the field, simulation is, is second to none. You know, you could have a, a, new, a conference proceeding that talks about um, a new protocol or algorithm delivered at the weekend come Monday, Tuesday, you've got a simulation where the, the practitioner can apply that knowledge straight away. Um, you know, and I, I think like with any industry, there's a lot of practitioners who are reluctant to change just with the, this is what I've done for, for 20 plus years. It's always worked. This is what I'm going to continue to do, which, you know, is, is a valid way of approaching the, the treatment of a patient. What simulation can provide those that opportunity to say, okay, that is a, a decent selection that you've made. But evidence-based medicine is suggesting that this might be a, a viable alternative option for this type of patient. So, you know, it's, it's providing that, that fertile ground to, to consider behaviour and also to provide that um, opportunity for, for self-reflection, which, again, is something that, that simulation is exceptional at doing, and, and providing that opportunity to, OK, telling me that this is an option, let's try it out, let me be informed, let me make a few decisions and, and see how that can hopefully eventually be implemented into, into my own practice. Do you see many examples beyond the kind of simulation that you're talking about where feedback is really built into clinical education design? Outside the, the field of um, simulation per se. Right. I think, you know, there's other learning interventions that do provide that sense of, of feedback. I mean, even just a, a relatively simple e-learning, multiple choice type of uh, endeavour will provide that, that level of feedback. I think that where, hmm. where simulation excels is because it's so immersive and it's so much investment in this patient, their story, 
all of the the baggage, all of the the hopes and fears that this virtual representation of the human provides. I think it's second to none in terms of that refocusing and reconsidering the the options. But yeah, I think he's spot on in, in saying that it's feedback is not just obviously restricted to, to the field of simulation, but certainly the way that it's applied and the way that it has that immediacy based on decisions made, I think that's a, a real key strength of the, the design. Mm. What about the other two things that uh, you talked about a few moments ago in terms of building in opportunity for error and kind of designing simulation in ways that provide opportunities to create change, to be the kind of catalyst for change? And presumably we're talking about behavioural change here. I think so. I, and again, I think this is a, an industry-wide, maybe even quite grandiose to say so, but maybe even a worldwide uh, mindset where for a lot of people, error, mistakes is, is seen as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we definitely want to instill within the sim that it's a, a safe space. You know, there's, it's the old joke that we always do about there's no virtual lawyers with virtual lawsuits with virtual malpractice. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, I th- yeah, I think it's just that, you know, getting your head around the fact that this is a safe space, there's no repercussions, nothing bad is going to mm-hmm. happen. In this sense, it's not necessarily a an assessment tool. It is a straight up training teaching tool where, you know, if you you might do an error, and then if, if you are made aware of the fact that you know this this test was unnecessary, it was invasive, it was uncomfortable, it was expensive. This is not an alternative option. Fantastic, you know, mm-hmm. do the do the mistakes, do the errors on this on this virtual human rather than the, the person that you're going to be seeing in a couple of hours time down the, down the hallway. You know, that's where the, the real benefit lies. So I think it's just that, that change in mindset, especially with, with medicine, you know, and the, the mindsets to become a doctor of being top of the class, got to be hundred percent all the time. It's, yeah. I've seen it a, a little bit of a struggle with, with undergrads, just getting that, that change of mindset to be able to, to experiment and, and play around and, yeah, and no, I try, try things out, try it all out, you know, do it there and then and, and learn from mm-hmm. it and treat that as a, a learning opportunity more than anything. Yeah, having that safe space and having the time actually uh, to engage in the kind of practices that you're talking about. And I suppose that raises an important issue here. To what extent are the things that we've been talking about really applicable in relation to undergraduate clinical education? for physicians versus continuing education in the health professions more generally? Again, super question. It's one that, you know, we definitely struggle with in terms of the, the two separate needs of the, the cohorts you've described. I think just looking back to what I said before with the, the practicing healthcare professionals, with the ever-changing landscape of, of medicine, it's getting that, that information to them in the same way any CME format would do. Um, to keep the, the skills up, to keep them practicing, just to, to have that ability to apply new knowledge in a, in a safe space. Whereas with the undergrads, it'll be, be everything. You know, I've seen some really interesting programs at various schools around the, the country where they're incorporating virtual patient simulation into a, a blended learning approach with uh, the standardized patient and then also the, the hi-fi mannequin. So it's almost like the, the continuum of care you might have a, a standardized patient come in complaining of, of chest pains, dizziness, sporadic, um, feeling faint, something along those lines. 
The next step might be the virtual patient where there's a few drugs administered, um, a few tests ordered, diagnosis made. So that's the, the next step. And it could culminate in a, in a crash situation, you know, cardiac arrest or something along those lines. Mm. It's a really, really, really nice way just to show all of the skill set, the, the history taking, the differential diagnosis, the initial treatments, and then, you know, the, the worst case scenario. So different needs, but I think there's a, a definite space for, for simulation to fulfill all of those needs between those, those two cohorts that you mentioned. And you're talking mainly in terms of individual skills. How applicable are the kinds of simulation that you're talking about for teamwork? and presumably also communication skills within teams. Yeah, that's another avenue where I think um, any modality of simulation can excel. You know, if you've got a crash team, especially, you've got that highly organised functional team. Mm -hmm. But even with a virtual patient, I think there's opportunity for interprofessional education and allied healthcare professionals to to treat the same patient. You might start with... uh, a PA doing the initial work of history and then handing it off to maybe something more of a specialist and then the specialist then handing it off to a, a sub-specialist. So again, just showing that, that continuum of care. And, and I think the real strength of that one is, you know, any Passover or um, change in terms of a misunderstanding or a, a mis, misdiagnosis or a misinterpretation of any piece of information is going to have that knock-on effect down the continuum. So it just, I think it just highlights the importance of, of every step along the way. And again, just that, that teamwork, that communication and, and the referral process as well. I think we're really, really strong, strong use of simulation for, for that type of training. Right. So really the whole kind of continuum of care can be part of or addressed by simulation modalities. Can we talk a little bit then about how you assess all of that? If we're talking about feedback and we're talking about making errors, presumably there's room there for formative assessment versus summative assessment. I think so. How we've designed and seen it in the in the past has been that that immediate feedback in terms of this is good, this is bad, and then you know the the summative assessment at the end. You should have done this, which I think could be you know relatively easily mapped out to, to standards of care and mm-hmm. you know, certain criterion. To, to show competence of a, a certain skill set. So I think there's, there's that opportunity there. I think the differentiation between the two is rather than having that formative assessment during the course of the, the simulation, um, having more of a, a summative, just end of sim, debrief, these are the things that you didn't do, these are the things you did do, this is good, this is bad, type of debrief would be, would be beneficial. Where we've struggled with that, in the past is, especially for, for CME, because it, it does need to be highly, highly structured in the sense that if you're gaining credit for this, the experience needs to be controlled to a certain degree. So we're providing feedback mm. along the way for each of the, the choices that are made. Um, whereas if you're going to use it more of a, an undergrad teaching tool, then you probably just have no immediate feedback, uh, none of the, the formative assessment and let them go down the rabbit holes. You know, if they start going down and missing certain things, let them order the, the unnecessary invasive tests that are, are not going to add any value to the work. And then use that as the, the debriefing opportunity at the end. And, you know, going full circle to go back to the idea about technology, you know, SIM, it's still that human component is, is vital especially for, you know, giving that that real sense of, of debrief, I think, you know, 
having the opportunity, even if it's just the, the cohort speaking among themselves um, in terms of, I thought it was this, I tried this, what were your experiences? Mm. And that's that's still vital. So even though it is, a lot of it is is technology orientated and, and technology based, that, that human component is still a, a key driver for, for successful sim, that's for sure. Oh, definitely happy to hear that and makes total sense. We've been talking mostly about simulation. Let's kind of broaden the gaze a little bit to um, touch on what makes for interesting and effective learning design generally. I mean, in your current role, you must see, um, you know, have a pretty wide view and in your experience as well, a pretty wide view of different kinds of learning design and modalities. So can you talk a little bit about what's interesting, what's effective? Yeah. And, you know, I think what mirrors good simulation and effective education are very, very similar in in the sense that anything that is, and linking it also back to the the concept of of learner experience design, you know, something that is learner-centred, perhaps as a a constructivist uh, slant in terms of learning and and teaching. And, you know, the, the one that I think is, is really exciting right now. Uh, the the big influence is that of um, of storytelling and, and narrative design. Um, you know, I think this is growing exponentially. I think it's going to grow even further with more uptake in VR and AR. Again, just linking that back to the idea of the the immersive nature of the of the medium. You know, that the whole uh, VR AR industry is essentially an exercise in, in storytelling as as virtual experiences, they're delivering the, the grammar and, and the narrative structure for, for educating, uh, informing, teaching and entertaining really in, in new ways. So I think, yeah, I think storytelling narrative design is going to be the big one, definitely. You know, it factors into so many educational interventions and, and going back to why I was, you know, referring to myself as being uh, lucky for choosing to go the, the humanities route Certainly, it's a, a skill set that seems to be in demand a lot more nowadays. You know, I think there's a, a big pendulum shift towards this more technical IT focused side, you know, in the last five, seven years. But I think it's moving back to more of the humanities now, which is a really interesting change. You know, I think it's a natural extension to technology being so user friendly. You know, we could rattle off a, a website relatively quickly with with limited coding experience, you know, a lot of it is um, pre-built user-friendly design, which you can incorporate into into things that you want to do. What's missing now is that that humanity, the the humanities component in terms of, okay, we've got this amazing technology, um, we've got this learner with a need, how do we marry the two up and what's what's the best way to do that? So that's really why the learner experience design is such a, integral position I think in in education and just in terms of developing these innovative ways to to engage and empower the learners in these new new environments that we're seeing with this multidisciplinary um, iterative learner-centered approach Um, you know I think it it goes beyond just effective course design to to create the entire end-to-end learning experience so like I say the the psychology of learning the user interface user experience design all of that good stuff that goes into uh, creating a, an opportunity for for learning to take place so 
Um, yeah, but going back to to the question that you, you raised, I think the the narrative design and storytelling is going to be absolutely the big thing for for any modality moving forward. Do you want to talk about that? In what you said, there's just so much good stuff, and I want to break it down. Do we have time? <laughs> By all means. So, first of all, you talked about constructivist learning. When I hear constructivist, you know, my background is as a sociologist, I hear the co-construction of meaning and that gets me really excited. What do you mean when you talk about constructivist learning? So this is a learning theory which I learned about maybe, again, you know, age disclaimer uh, going on right now. I think it's about 18, 19 years ago. And Really, it's it's all about focusing on the the learner's previous knowledge and their and their starting point. It's it's pretty much coming along the the lines of this is my my current understanding. How am I going to get to to the next level? So it is it's that building the the constructions, the elements along the different ways. Um, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of this. Vygotsky and his son of proximal Russian. That's the one. <laughs> so, that's all about the, the idea of how you experience the world and how you uh, reflect upon what you've seen. That's going to help you develop to the next quote-unquote level, as it says. So rather than just, just passively taking the information, you're actively using this to increase and improve your schematic theory about the world as a whole. So I think that's for me is constructivism, and, and that is such a, a great approach for, for technology influenced learning because it provides that uh, personalized component feedback and, and providing you with what you need at the right time to really take you to that to that next level and help you like you say help you make sense of the world and linking back to storytelling it's just a natural fit as well so meaning perspective context and you touched earlier on user experience so I can see how those two things kind of fit together but I do think that that actually getting that sense of what's the learner's starting point is not often something that we're very good at in the continuing medical education field because so much of it is based so much of that Data collection is a kind of pre-test approach, so correct me if I'm wrong here, whereas in the things that you're talking about, I hear, okay, you need a really deep dive into what that learner world looks like in order to be able to set the foundation for building on that learning experience. I think that is an incredible point you just raised. And I think the key component there is just this sense of, of finding that personalised barrier as to why, for want of a better turn of phrase, why the schema for that person might be somewhat wonky or, or out of line in comparison to what would be anticipated in terms of that, that knowledge base. So, yeah, I think linking it back to that personalised approach, my barrier to, to understanding might be completely different to yours, just based on on background, previous learning, previous experience. So if we can really pass down and discover that, then we're winning, that's for sure. Those early 20th century Russian constructivists were all about wonky <laughs> schemas. <laughs> no, I love that. That's a, that's a great point. And then the other part of that is, and you've mentioned it a few times now, is storytelling, narrative design. What are you seeing in education that excites you around narrative design. And I think you're right about 
it's interesting to track the way that narrative has emerged within medical education. I mean, there's a whole program on narrative medicine at Columbia University now. Um, in the last 15, maybe even 20 years or so, you know, we've seen a real expansion of writers from within medicine who are telling that story of medicine as medical practitioners, as as clinicians. So, you know, Atul Gawande, Siddhartha Mukherjee, yeah. Abraham Verghese. There, you know, there's a whole uh, cadre of writers from within medicine who are really driving home that point about the patient's story is is at the heart of everything. So is that what you mean or are you talking about something else? There's so much good stuff to unpack there. It's exactly the intention, you know, certainly for the simulations that, that I've helped create, it was always putting the other patient story front and centre. So you might, again, as speaking as a layperson, you might have a, a premise for the simulation of white female, early 20s, dyspnea on exertion after two two blocks walking, something like that. Just based on that real dry clinical explanation, you can already start formulating ideas about this person. So how is it affecting them? What is their socioeconomic background? Just even saying that now, Alex, I've got this, this idea of perhaps a, a single parent, low income, struggling to you know get to work because of the dyspnea. And that's bringing on all sorts of um, issues personally. Whereas if you've just got that, you know, four or five bullet point sentence of uh, of the patient, then that's it's going to be a very different experience to how you go about treating that person when they're sat in front of you in real life, based on what you've just read on the on the soap notes before you before you enter the room. And speaking with physicians in the field as well, it's those people, all the stories that they tell from the battle stories and the and the war stories that they tell. It's never white male 70s it's always you know fred x he was a farmer for 70 years and it, it adds the color and it adds the flavor and it adds that that teaching moment and in the same way that we remember the the nursery rhymes from from when we were a kid you know it's just ingrained into so it's about the, the parables and the stories and, and the best way forward and i've probably be even so bold as to say as technology encroaches further into medicine and not just necessarily for, for a teaching tool, but for, for a diagnostic tool. It is that bedside manner and the humanism of the physician, which is going to be perhaps more important than, than anything else. I'm hesitant to say it gets to the stage where a, an algorithm or artificial intelligence can make a diagnosis and treatment protocol, but it's certainly been used already as a subsidiary tool to make mm-hmm. um, diagnosis and um, assist in the care. And then, it's going to fall upon the physician to, to be the to be the teacher, to be the explainer, to to talk thoroughly about the options with um, a real life human, rather than just those those four sentences on a on a piece of paper before they enter the room. So yeah, I think it's going to be not to to bash doctors in the sense that they're all clinical with no sense of empathy, but I think it is going to become more and more apparent as we do factoring more of that about technological advancement in medicine as well. Oh, that's a, a lovely way of, of describing all of that. I tend to agree. And I, I also think that when you listen to those stories from the, the trenches, often the devil really is in the detail. It is in the fact that um, somebody's in a particular occupation that exposes mm. them to, to particular risk factors that you're not necessarily going to know about unless you ask those really detailed questions about 
who the person is versus the clinical part of, you know, history taking and the physical exam. Great point. You know, yeah, I've not been able to take my medication thoroughly because I can't afford it. That's a whole new set of barriers. And that's huge. Yeah, it's massive, isn't it? Yeah. It is interesting when when you look at um, kind of evaluations of learner experience and outcomes in in continuing education programs. I mean, often the, the biggest barriers to clinical practice are time and funding. So either their own funding in the context that they're working in, they don't have access to the resources, the material resources that are going to enable them to deliver the care that they want to deliver, whether we're talking about nurses or pharmacists or physicians. And then the other part of that resource piece, what patients have access to. Mm. You have worked in this space for a while, this space being clinical education broadly defined And you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that, yeah, most of us, we land here by serendipity. What keeps you here? I think because there's so much, it's such a fascinating field just in terms of um, innovations and, and changes and new things coming along, you know, even just from a technological stand in, from a, from an approach stand in, you know, innovation after innovation throughout all of the, all of the years and, you know, it, it's such a fascinating area, but I think the underlying theme for me is that I'm in an exceptionally privileged position to be able to have direct impact on the quality of life of an individual and to do this with no to no medical training, but still empower and enable a healthcare professional to improve the quality of life, the, the quality of care for, for an individual and seeing the impact of the education that I've helped develop um, in terms of the, the metrics and the outcomes and the behavior changes, it's, it's a privilege, it's an honor, and it is humbling as well. So I think that's what probably keeps me, keeps me in the field. And to kind of wrap up our conversation, you've mentioned storytelling, you've mentioned being learner-centered. What are some of the key things that this field really needs to pay close attention to in order to keep building on that platform for developing effective education? I think it's the same for any type of education, um, regardless of the, of the industry. It's just making sure that the tool, the approach, the design is fit for purpose. I think it's really, really, really easy to be enamored by the, the latest tech or the, the latest approach, but just having that that wherewithal to be able to make a judicious selection as to what your outcomes need to be and how best to achieve them is, is going to be beneficial. Otherwise, we're just going to have really expensive, really inefficient education and, you know, people are going to start uh, questioning the, the roles and responsibilities of, of what we're doing as a, as a cohort. That's a great way to wrap up our conversation. And I also love that you use the word judicious. It's one of my favourite words. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, thank you so much for sharing some of your insights on Right Medicine. Anything we haven't talked about that is really important to what you do? I really don't think so. You know, I think we touched upon all of the things that make me tick, all of the things that you know, I think we both agree on as being integral and important for, for education right now. And 
yeah, thank you. That was actually a wonderful conversation. You know, definitely a, a highlight of the year so far. So thank you for that. Great talking to you. Thanks so much. Likewise, thank you. Virtual learning entails choosing the best modality for the problem that we're trying to solve. As one of my sociology professors liked to say, there are horses for courses. A proverb that simply means different people are suited to different things or situations, or different learning modalities are suited for different learning needs. Virtual learning through simulation is really about representation representing the environment and scenarios that clinicians practice in, in ways that are as authentic as possible, that allow for error and course corrections, and that provide feedback to close that learning loop. As Martin said, clinicians can apply new learning, especially, although not only, procedural learning, immediately in a safe environment through simulations. And simulation-based education is expanding in ways that allow adults to accomplish their learning goals through deliberate practice and reflection, which are both practices that are supported by behavioural learning theory and that can lead to mastery. It takes mastery in the psychology of learning, the user interface, user experience and design to create opportunities for learning to take place in a simulated environment, as Martin says as well as an appreciation for narrative design, for the ways in which stories bring us together and connect us both to the experience of learning and to each other. Thank you for connecting with Martin and me in this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and or leave a review on your podcast listening platform. That lets us deepen our connection even further. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine.